0: Thank you so much well let's pray together lord god we do sing hallelujah and praise to you as your people so thrilled lord jesus that you would save us and some of those lyrics that were sung this morning just now we want to give you praise for them light of the world crown in a manger born for the cross to suffer to save high king of heaven Death is the poorer, we are the richer by the price that he paid. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the light of the world, that you were born for a purpose, to save us from our sins, and that we have freedom and eternity with you because of the price that you paid. Light of the world soon will be coming, with fire in his eyes he will ransom his own. Through clouds he will lead us straight into glory, and there he shall reign forever, more forever, more. Lord Jesus, we also praise you that the redemption that you have purchased for us on the cross, that we get to enjoy it so fully and so richly even here, but we look forward to the time when you return, and we will get all of the benefits for which you have suffered on that cross, have been raised to glory for our purpose, for our salvation. And we look forward to that day, and we pray that you would keep us looking with eagerness and excitement for the return and for the consummation of the ages. And we pray this morning, also on this Christmas morning, that as we look into your word and the gospel according to John, that you would remind us again and afresh of all these basic but so, such rich and important truths about our life with you and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we've been studying for Advent series this year the Gospel of John, the beginning of it anyway. And so we looked at the prologue, uh, John one one through eighteen. Uh, we looked at John the Baptizer's ministry a little bit and how that pointed to Jesus Christ. And this morning, now on Christmas morning, and Merry Christmas to you all. We are going to be looking at the mission of Jesus, the Son of God, from John chapter three verse sixteen to 21. Some very famous verses in here, ones that you probably know very well, and it's my prayer that as we look at them this morning that we'll know them even better and more personally. And so you can turn your Bibles, if you have them, to John 3, 16. You can also just follow along with the text that's been printed for you. But one thing that's really important to notice before we begin this passage is that as any passage that you just sort of jump into in the Bible in the middle, there's context for it. And really, the Apostle John is commenting on an episode that just took place, another famous one, where Jesus had this conversation with with a man named Nicodemus, And, uh, and the whole conversation was about, what does it mean to be born again? And at the very end of that conversation, Jesus makes these statements. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, speaking of himself, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then immediately after that conversation comes this commentary, starting in verse 16, from the Apostle John. And he wants to develop the thought from these two verses in a very specific way for, so that we understand that the glorious mission of Jesus Christ is to save the world. That's his mission. And we learn two basic truths in our passage that we're looking at this morning, and that is in verses 16 to 18, that God loved the world in spite of the fact that the world loved sin. And that's what we come out with in verses 19 to 21. First, God loved the world, but in spite of the fact that the world has been loving sin. And so John's commentary continues in on this interaction that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Now, I know that in some of your Bibles, uh, verses 16 to 21, some editors think that these continue to be the words of Jesus. So if you have those red-letter Bibles, it might continue that way. But, of course, in the original language, in Greek, there are no quotation marks, and so you can't go by that to know who is speaking. So you have to decipher it by context. And you'll notice there's a big change in perspective and intense and the overwhelming scholarly consensus is that these are the apostles' remarks on what Jesus has just conversed with with Nicodemus, and so we're going to proceed with that understanding, and the beginning of this gospel account that we're looking at this morning is all about this glorious mission of Jesus to save the world. And so let's consider that. The love of Christ begins in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only Son, name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been Worked out in God. So we begin with this very famous verse in verse sixteen, and John's commenting on this uh, mission of Jesus again, picking up on those final words of the conversation with Nicodemus that, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must also the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And he's referring referring to a very specific episode uh, that took place in the Old Testament. And the serpent was lifted up on a staff by Moses so that those who had sinned could look upon that staff. And by looking upon it, they are then trusting in God's provision for salvation. They are repenting of their sins by doing so and receiving forgiveness. And Jesus is saying of himself that he himself would be lifted up. And you know what that would be, was referring to, that he would be lifted up on a cross. That everyone that would look upon him, and that is, Looking means by faith and repentance, putting your trust in Jesus Christ, that there will be eternal life and forgiveness granted. So John wants his readers to understand that this whole dialogue with Nicodemus is all about putting your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can have eternal life. In fact, that's the whole reason the apostle wrote his book. At the end, he closes it with these words and says, These things I have written that you may believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, verse 16 is probably the most well-known Bible verse in, in in the Bible and quoted today, and for positive reasons, I would suggest, and that's because it encapsulates the whole gospel message so simply. And as we read this passage, we see that God so loved the world. You know, it's not just, this is a general term speaking about the world and all peoples of the world, and it fulfills the prophecy that was given about Jesus, where it says in Isaiah 49, it's too small of a thing that you should just be raised up to preserve the tribes of Israel, but I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the very ends of the earth. That's God's purpose, that his salvation would be for all the peoples that he created, all the different ethnic groups around the world. And then, of course, we can read it very particularly because it's not just... This general statement, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we read this passage, and we know it applies to us personally. That God so loved us that he sent his son to die for our sins, those of us who believe in him. And also, I want us to notice a few other things that look at the intensity of the love of God that is described here. When he says, for God so loved the world, I mean, he could have just said, for God loved the world. But it's for God so loved the world. Or another translation would be, this is how God loved the world, that he sent his only son. And so there's this intensity of love and desire toward us. And the extent of it is that he would give his son. And the giving of the son of God, Jesus Christ, is referring to the whole of his work. Yes, we think initially of his incarnation, that he would be sent to earth but it's also speaking to that he would give his son up on that cross in crucifixion for the salvation of those who believe in him. And so we recall some of the other stories in the Old Testament that predict this this work of Jesus Christ, Genesis 22 and Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, and the common language that we see even expressed there. So just to quote parts of that for you, your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, You have not withheld your son, your only son. And as we read Genesis 22 in that story, those of us who know the Bible well, we know this is predicting something much greater, much grander in the history of redemption than just the story and the development under Abraham. We might recall the prophecy in Isaiah 52 and 53 about the suffering servant and the giving of him for the atonement from our sin just to read portion of that, it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Speaking of Jesus on the cross, it was his will to put him to grief. When he would, his soul would make an offering for guilt, he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And of course, we know that that's referring to what Jesus would do when he would become our substitute that He would die in our place, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, the substitutionary atonement for multitudes, as the Apostle John would later write in 1 John 4, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's because the natural condition of all of humanity, of each and every one of us, as even John 3.16 says, that we would be rescued from perishing, is that that is our natural situation and condition, to be under the very judgment of God. But what amazing grace that He would love us so much that He would send His only Son to save us and to grant us eternal life upon forgive, and forgiveness and happiness upon putting our faith in Him. And so, the passage then continues, this is the opening statement, and then the purpose of Christ is, is, is drawn out for us more in verses 17 and 18, when He begins again, for God, to explain it even further, the Apostle John says, to explain verse 16 even more so, for God didn't send His son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through Him, and whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever doesn't believe, well, he's condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so the Apostle restates the mission very clearly, that the Son was sent from the Father to save the world, not to condemn the world. The condemnation of the world is coming, but that's at when Jesus Christ returns. Now, of course, nevertheless, Jesus coming into the world is going to divide humanity. And we've already seen that in the, in, the, in the book of John so far because he changed everything in the world when Jesus came. And so he brings judgment early in a sense, but it's different. It's not active outward judgment. It's a passive judgment. It's a judgment that a lost and sinful world that pursues its own glory is judged by. So Jesus would later say in John chapter 9, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So he would divide humanity based upon how they would respond to himself and his work and who he is. In John chapter 12, Jesus also said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. As one commentator put it, very simply, you know, Christ came to judge the world as little as the sun comes to cast a shadow. But judgment like the shadow is the natural consequence of the world's constitution and circumstances. As we'll see as we continue in our passage this morning, But this offer is for whoever wants to put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just for the religious people, as we sometimes think. I mean, you think about John's original audience and and writing to them, you know, the salvation offer from Jesus Christ. It's not just for Jewish people. It's for all the peoples of the world, as the prophets have already foretold. And the Apostle John has been making clear, and will make even more clear. It's not just for people at the time, there were a couple of unusual groups floating around at the time, people who somehow thought they had a special way into getting special knowledge from God, mystery initiates, and somehow thinking that, well, this salvation would be just for them, or people who separated themselves and created their own little community and thought they were holier than the rest of the people, and that somehow Jesus would be for them. Well, there are always these types of people out there. But, and, then it, and then it makes other people who are not like that wondering, well, this Jesus, this salvation. It's just for those religious types, just for those people who have special knowledge, just for those people who are maybe good enough to somehow earn God's favor. But no, it's for whoever would believe in Jesus as John opens his gospel, but to everyone who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the honor and the privilege to become children of God. You know, Christ accomplished his purpose when he came. Many people did believe in him, the all-sufficient provision for sin. And he continues to be successful. We've been given life who believed in him, spared judgment. And as John five twenty four says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, Jesus says again, and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. You have it. He doesn't come into judgment, Jesus continues, but has passed from death to life. Living in the realm of death and sin and judgment, this new reality has come by simply putting our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Those who persist in unbelief, who refuse to accept who Jesus is and what he came to do, well, they're in a position now that's a little bit different because... There's now condemnation looming over their heads in a new way, and the wrath of God hangs upon them in a new way because Jesus has come. And in fact, they don't really need to wait for the pronouncement of judgment because it's, it's there, it's Jesus' words. Later on in John chapter 3, verse 36, after another discussion with John the baptizer, these words are, are written, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. But for today, Christmas morning, of course, we want to consider the love of God toward the world. It's so great. And the provision in Jesus Christ for salvation is amazing. Because we all know that we can't save ourselves by ourselves, right? there's nothing we can do. People try at Christmas time to love God more. They try to love their fellow man more. They try to do good more because they watch all those Christmas movies. And that's the salvation that's promised in the Christmas movie. But it's not a true salvation that's based upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So when we consider Jesus Christ and what he did particularly for us, we should be encouraged, filled with joy, relieved, filled with worship, amazed, thankful, purposeful, I mean our whole life changes, everything is so different. And we should also think about who else needs to hear this message around you that you could share it with and wouldn't it be great to be the one to be able to share with them the glorious mission of Jesus to save the world. Well, that's the first basic truth that God so loved the world. The second is that he loved the world in spite of the world's love for sin and that's what we consider in verses 19 to 21. We have the lovers of darkness in verses 19 to 21, and then the question comes up, how can it be that some people would become lovers of light? And that's what verse 21 is about. And so the passage continues, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Exposed. So John's tracing the process of judgment upon those who don't believe. I mean, the light has come into the world. It's Jesus. Yet even when he came, people loved the darkness. That's how the gospel opens in John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. And in John 8:12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, light of life. So why would people do this? When it seems that all they have to do is just walk toward the light. I mean, how simple can it be? But people you see love living the lives that they were living. They didn't really like the fact that Jesus came into their darkness because they were enjoying the rebellion against God and his morality. And People know that many of their thoughts and their words that they speak and the actions that they do, they're wrong, uh, they're impure, they're evil, uh, they're wicked, and they don't want to get too close to God, because if you get too close to God, well, then you're going to be exposed for who you really are. You see, coming to the light is really just too convicting, as we as sinful people avoid that at all costs. Perhaps you remember when you were under conviction, by the Holy Spirit and threatened by, really, the gospel itself. And, uh, and so many people do that. When, when they get threatened by the gospel, um, there, there are a few reactions. Maybe you did one of them when you first heard. People come become defensive and all of a sudden defend their lives and how righteous they are and better than they are than other people. Or all of a sudden, when people get confronted by the gospel, uh, all of a sudden, the whole thing becomes an intellectual argument and a debate. Or, this is my favorite one, when people get confronted by the truths of the gospel, all of a sudden, people become religious experts. I mean, they weren't religious experts before, but all of a sudden, they seem to know a lot about religion. And we avoided those truths, too, because of our lives. As another commentator put it this way, he says, Jesus confronts people simply with the character that they already have. You know, people hate the light, the passage says, because of their sinful nature and of the sinful choices that flow from that. And they will not come to the light because Jesus Christ is going to expose who they are. And yet, it's ironic because in that exposure comes more. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so there's more than just the exposure. That's necessary. But then there's forgiveness and healing and a reorientation of life and joy and freedom that comes by putting your faith in Christ and letting him be the one who would pay the penalty for your sins. I mean, it should be otherwise that people, when they see the light of Jesus in the world, would just come to the light. But it can't be because of the fact that people are so sinful that they're unable to do that, first of all, and second of all, they're unwilling. You know, it's not just a matter of somehow, you know, if people just knew more or if the process were just a little clearer for people, they could just do that. They could understand the truth. It's not a matter of intellectual understanding to come to faith in Jesus. And it's also not just that people somehow need to be given an opportunity to make a decision. That's not how people come to Christ. They have to be enabled and be made willing through new life. That's what we just would have looked at if we were studying through the Gospel of John. That's the whole point of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that the apostle is commenting on is you have to be born again, and then you can come to the light of Jesus. It's a spiritual work that God has to work in a person's life. So, that's how it is that some people become lovers of light in verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, in contrast to those who do evil, Verse 21 describes those who practice the truth or act faithfully, those who believe in Jesus and live out a new life. Those who do come to the light, make it plain that they've already been regenerated by God. And the good deeds, as the passage says and closes, were worked by God. They weren't worked by the people themselves, in and of themselves. And so this passage, as we get to verse 21, it's very important. It's not teaching that some people are naturally good. Or that some people just are really heroic at saving themselves, and they're really good at their own efforts. They've already been dismissed by Jesus in his teachings on being born again in the previous paragraphs. In other words, this is just simply a description of those who do believe, those who have come to the life to the light by repentance and faith in Jesus and live out the truth. So when they're coming to the light in their new true spiritual righteousness, they simply prove that it had to be a work of God. It couldn't be anything else. It couldn't have come from their own initiative. As another pastor or scholar puts it, he says, the one who follows its course because its deeds are evil, but the other follows its course not because its deeds are righteous, but because it longs to show that its deeds have been done through God. And so here at the very end of the passage, the apostle again reminds us that there's, there's absolutely... No room for pride in being a follower of Jesus. It's not because we were smarter than other people and you figured it out. That's not why. That's not how it works. It's not because somehow you were better than somebody else or you did more good works that somehow caused God to favor you. No, it's not a part of human striving or human decision. And go back to John 1.12. It's all the grace work of God for us. In his own glory. And so you might want to turn to this passage, Ephesians 2 1 to 10. I'm going to read the whole section. But this is a key New Testament passage. And again, it reflects exactly what is being discussed here by the Apostle John, although it's written by the Apostle Paul. And so Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you'll notice as we get to the end, the very end of the passage is like almost the exact same words that we have here at the end of our current passage. And so, describing who we are and our inability to come to the light, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace of his kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, can you see all the parallels with John 3:16 to 21? There's so many here. And then... Concluding, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, for it's the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you can read these passages on your own together. They fit so well together, John three sixteen to 21 and Ephesians 2, 1-10. But consider then God's love for the world in spite of the world's love for sin. It's amazing. So many levels. And consider the light of Christ, specifically the work of God in bringing you to the light and saving you. I mean, you can't congratulate yourself for coming to the light, but you have to thank God that he's given you new birth so that you would come to the light. You know, You should realize that being God's workmanship means that he's the one who's done everything for your salvation and in you. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, the apostle here is going to explain that two truths are fully compatible. The first is that God sovereignly chooses who he saves, and he bestows grace on them, and He's going to make it very plain that people are responsible to believe in the gospel that's in front of their face. And not only is John, the apostle, going to explain all these things theologically in his gospel account, he's actually going to give you a number of examples of people and how these two truths are worked out. In fact, the best place in the Bible, I would suggest, to explore these doctrines of God's sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility and how they fit together is the Gospel of John. The intricacies are all there in the real-life experiences. Together, though, this morning, what we understand from the Gospel of John is this glorious mission of Jesus to save the world. And when I think about this passage, and I've been thinking about it this week, that God loves the world in spite of the world's love for sin. Well, how about us? You know, do we love the world in spite of its sin, people that we may know? I mean, the Apostle John didn't write his gospel account to condemn the world. The Apostle John wrote the book so that people would get saved by presenting Jesus as a wonderful, beautiful Savior. He didn't write it to just condemn people in their darkness. They already know that. He wants to see Jesus save the world. And so when we think about ourselves, a couple questions should come to mind. Do you really want people to believe? And if we do, then we shouldn't make the gospel so complicated for people sometimes. We should make it easy for them to understand. And are we really hoping that people will believe? Well, then we shouldn't doubt that they will accept. But present Christianity, present faith in Jesus as something that's very simple. It's unique. It's different in many people's lives. As I hear testimonies of people's salvation, especially, you know, when you interview people before they get baptized or those types of things, it's amazing to me how the stories are all the same, on the one hand, about how people come to understand the true gospel, they can explain the gospel, and they know they put their faith in it. But yet, how different all the stories are, because God works so differently in our lives. But it's amazing to see this salvation take place. You know, for ourselves on Christmas Day, I think part of uh, the purpose of looking at a passage like this and concluding our Advent series is, is personal renewal in the simplicity of the gospel and our own journey in the faith and looking back at God's grace in our life. You know, in First John, John 5, you notice I've been quoting a lot from John, John's gospel and First John. I mean, it's just all over the place in the Apostle John. It's like he only has one theme. And that is believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. It's everywhere throughout the gospel. It's almost on every single page in John's gospel and then in his epistles as well, his letters. So 1 John 5 simply says this, concluding that letter really. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have life eternal life. Do you have friends that don't know a hundred percent for certain that they have eternal life? They don't really know if they really believe in Jesus or they don't. Well, the Apostle John wrote this letter to make it really clear that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can know for a hundred percent certainty that you have salvation, that you have eternal life, that you're gonna spend eternity in glory. What a blessing To have that assurance in your life. The eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to earth and accomplished his mission. And that mission is stated in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your work coming from heaven to this world. Living the perfect life we could not live to grant us a righteousness, dying on a cross in our place to remove the wrath of God that hung over us because of our sinful nature and our sinful deeds. We praise you that we can know for certain that by believing in you as the Son of God, as the one who sacrificed himself for our sins, that we have eternal life and without hesitation and we can live in light of that in open glory and joy and anticipation And that we can spread this message of the gospel to those around us with clarity and conviction. And we pray that you would bless us this day as we celebrate uh, Christmas with our family and our friends. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.